Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Carla Long, and today I... I don't even know what I'm getting into, but I'm super excited about getting into it. I'm here with Jake Johnson. Um, He is actually, I know his brother, but I don't know him in person. And now after learning about who he is and what he does, I cannot wait to meet him in person. So um, Jake, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I'm actually going to let you introduce yourself and talk about what we are talking about today. Totally. Yeah. It's great to be here with you, Carla. Um, So I am a uh, professor of musicology, it's a thing, at Oklahoma City University, and I, uh, the kind of work I do as a musician and as a as a music scholar, a music historian, has a lot to do with um, religion and American musical theater, and so I've written a couple of books on that, one on Mormonism in particular, and I think, you know, happy to chat about both of those things and some of the, some of the topics that came up and uh kind of why why that's a part of the of the story um so yeah that's that's a bit of who i am i i think i i i have a background in the community of christ which maybe we could talk about i don't know if you want to talk about that that kind of where i come from okay yeah so so i grew up in the rlds church and uh, uh i i was very involved in playing piano for church services and those kinds of things and I guess if I was looking backwards on why I decided to write books on musicals and religion, it was because there's often like musical theater excerpts being <laughs> sung in church services, uh, whether people are aware of it or not. It's like climb every mountain and it's something that's inspirational. That's something that means um, overcoming great obstacles and people associate religious value with that. So anyway, I grew up playing those kinds of things uh, in Community of Christ and other church services. Um, and then when I was a, later in my teens and going into college, I converted to Mormonism and uh, got married to a Mormon woman, and we started our lives together. And uh, since then, many years later, we have kind of gravitated in and out of Mormonism um, as a whole. So we kind of have occupied all the, all the grounds it seems like you might be able to occupy within Mormonism um, and the belief in this kind of big tent version of things. And so uh, for me, it's really great to come back and reflect on on the, the things I, I treasure most about the community of Christ and to think about how people on all strata and, and spectrum of Mormonism might relate to, I don't know, some of the ideas I have about musicals of all things. So you really do have the full spectrum. Well, not the full spectrum. I mean, there's what, like a couple hundred churches supposedly founded by Joseph Smith Jr. So you not might have them. a a few more to go, but you've hit the two big ones, the two biggest ones. Um, so you do have more of an understanding, I think, of um, the restoration than a lot of people do, which is really cool. So, Jake, I'm not sure you mentioned your two books' names. If you want to mention those, um, I think that people would be really interested in hearing what those are. Yes. Yeah, so my first book was from 2019, and it's called Mormons, Musical Theater, and Belonging in America. And then in September of 2021, my second book um, it will come out, and it's called Lying in the Middle, Musical Theater and Belief at the Heart of America. And both of those are published through the University of Illinois Press. Oh, that's very cool. And actually very smart of you to publish books before, right before and during a pandemic. What else can people do but stay at home and read? Just Very, reading. very clever of you. Yeah, or writing books. That's what we do. <laughs> that's, that's what we do. So... Jake, I'm just going to jump into it because I am very curious about your answers here. So why do you think musicals are so important in religious communities? You mentioned, you know, like singing musicals in church, like climb every mountain, but why, why else are they important? Yeah. So that's a, I came to that question after just kind of being around Mormon people and community of Christ people, but um, maybe I'll speak specifically to Mormons first. Um, I just found that there was this great appreciation for the wholesome nature of what golden age musical theater was, where the guy gets the girl and the the villain gets um, its comeuppance and everything works out in the end. And that kind of tidy, uh, energetic push towards reconciliation is very 
smacks up very much of like American religion as well, where things are going to be okay in the end. We'll all be better if we work together and if we celebrate the people who are exemplary moral figures around us. So I, I came to that awareness just after watching people interact with musicals almost in a, as a religious, in a religious way. And this is from growing up in the middle of the country in America. Anyway, there's so much, uh, so much traffic with musical theater, even though we usually think of musicals as being something that happens in New York. Um, I'm really committed to the idea that musical theater is an everywhere genre. It happens lots of places and unsuspecting places like rural parts of the country and in religious services. So I started drawing a, a map of, of religion and musical theater and they connected to each other so many times again and again. Um, so that's kind of the, the broad interest in how musicals work. And I, I can talk a bit more uh, a bit later maybe about how belief gets structured in and through musical theater and why that's important for religious communities. Um, but I can say just really briefly, the, the Mormon connection is uh, peculiar and specific, and it has a lot to do with the origins of, of the Restoration in 1830, or the founding of the church, I should say, in 1830. And also in upstate New York in the same year, there was this, this creation of the Jumping Jim Crow minstrel character um, that was developing alongside Mormonism. These were not related to each other in any obvious ways, but you do see within that same cities, in the same region of the country, in the same year, this architecture being put together that says um, musical theater, this kind of American icon, uh, this genre, and then this American homegrown religion are developing side by side. And uh, I was captivated by the poetry of that. And the more I looked into it, this this kind of um, not completely unilateral, but an oddly, oddly um, uh, limping relationship between Mormonism and musical theater from the 19th century all the way until 2011 when Book of Mormon, the musical, comes on Broadway. Um, you have this really strange story, and I started following it and was really happy to discover the ins and outs of American virtue and moral positions being reflected back when you start looking at these two American icons intersecting in strange ways. So that was basically the, the kind of impulse behind the, the first the first book. You know, it's really interesting that you brought up the Book of Mormon musical because I wanted to see it, of course. <laughs> and I really, I, I had a chance like to listen to the music before and I didn't even want to do that. I wanted it to be all brand new the second I saw it on the theater. And I saw it here in Salt Lake City. And it was here for a couple weeks or so, and it was hard to get tickets. It was super duper duper packed every single time. And I was a little bit shocked by that. And then I realized that maybe the Book of Mormon musical really resonates with the post-Mormon community. And there's a lot of post-Mormons in Salt Lake City. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? Do Can you talk about maybe why that is true or? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, Book of Mormon in some ways, uh, does Mormon history better than the Mormon church has been um, telling its own history? What, what I mean by that is that the creators of the musical are, are not Mormon, uh, but they grew up in the American West and, um, by their accounts, grew up around a lot of Mormons, had a lot of Mormon friends, and so Mormonism was vaguely familiar to them. And uh, the way that the history of the Restoration is presented in its messy form in the musical is not the kind of history that that most restoration churches have been <laughs> leading with as they tell their own their own version of the story things are obviously going to be more tidy and lean towards a cleaner version of things by an institution's standpoint and uh, in mormonism history is so vibrantly important to the theology it, the theology really does emerge out of history itself and so when you start pulling at the strings and saying, oh, well, there's actually several versions of this first vision story we heard from Joseph Smith in the Grove, um, or actually this happened differently than the kind of canonical history, then it's not just an inconvenience of like, oh, I didn't know that. that that's, that's interesting. It's not that. It's actually a lot more that comes with it when you start pulling those threads. So just at face value, what the musical's doing is in reflecting back more or less how the restoration started 
um, without the filters of the Mormon church, it's already doing some kind of aggravational work. It's already kind of aggravating um, or upsetting the apple cart. But I did see that, you know, maybe from that position, um, it was attractive to post-Mormons or Mormons who had known that the history was not as tidy as it has been presented and found themselves ostracized or not welcome because they were trying to work through that in their own way. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's also something important about when Book of Mormon comes about, because this is only a few years after Prop 8 in California, which was a very controversial um, as a political position, but with that um, institution of gay marriage, uh, but also the church played a really big part in trying to prevent and trying to kind of insert itself into the policy of the state. And uh, it seems to me that in some ways, this Book of Mormon, the musical, is presenting a queer version of Mormonism. Queer, not necessarily because they're, they're all gay on stage, but just like it's it's turning Mormonism on its head and making Mormons and non-Mormons alike see America differently through it and see themselves differently through it. And it seems almost like a one-upping of this kind of uh, cultural, um, uh, like, like you're like they're kind of a, a get back at the Prop 8 period within the within the country and with the church's history in it. So I don't think there's anything in the, in the musical that's trying to be um, mean or uh, I don't think it's being an overly critical version of Mormonism, but it's presenting it in a way that's so satirical and so uh, lighthearted that uh, you can't help but be in kind of entrapped within the story. And that's been part of its success, I think, um, up leading up until the pandemic. Well, I know that when I was watching it, I gasped several times because I was shocked. I was completely shocked. The audience around me was cracking up and laughing, but I was like, oh my goodness, how can they get away with saying that? Um, I was, and I was just shocked by it. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a wild musical, and it walked. It knew where the line was, and it it tiptoed alongside it. And I think since then, you know, that there's been a lot of concern about revamping Book of Mormon to be. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of other reasons why Book of Mormon is a problematic musical, and it has a lot to do with the way Africans are depicted and Africa is depicted. Not as much about how Mormons are depicted, because here's I mean here's the thing: Mormonism was re- more or less depicted accurately. In the musical, as goofy as it may have been, it's that's how it is. What's not presented accurately is this kind of version of Africa that seems to be drawn from like Lion King or <laughs> um, kind of grossly painting this this continent in one single color, and that makes it look cartoonish. And I think it's that disjunction between oh, Africa. Either you take Mormonism seriously in the musical, therefore you you see the whole thing as being earnest or you see it all as being cartoonish, and it's neither of those. It's actually presented in a weird combination. So I think um, when Book of Mormon returns to Broadway, I think it will be a revamped and revised version that maybe rethinks some of the lang- some of the way it, it talks about and depicts Africa. Oh, that's good. Because part of my gasping was about how the Ugandans were depicted. And um, I've been to Africa and, and a long time ago, and I, I've seen a whole lots of different types of Africans in Africa. There's not just one for sure. So that makes me feel a little bit better about that. So you talked about how the Book of Mormon musical kind of um, did something in Mormonism and post-Mormonism. Let's let's take a step back from that and maybe talk about what musicals actually do in the world. Like how do musicals change the world or change us? And then right after that, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to narrow that down to Mormonism, but what do musicals do for us in the world? So the way I see musicals is that they are helping us practice fantasy. They are always telling lies about the world. And I want to talk about how I use that word lie um, a, a little bit musicals are always very obviously contrived. No one bursts into song and dance and has the same memorized choreography in the real world. So it's, it, it can't even pretend to be real. There can be real effects from the fantasy, and that's something that's important, but on it, at its face, it can never be confused with being real um, or being the truth. So I, I, I have begun, especially in this kind of post-age moment or uh, post-truth uh, moment we've been living through. <laughs> it's a long, extended moment. 
I've been thinking a lot about the effects of truth and maybe as many people have had experience with uh, through social media or elsewhere, um, you, you can only defend your, your position with facts that may not be convenient for the other people. And so then they can contrive their own facts. And so then you're just kind of talking past each other. So truth, it seemed to me, was a losing proposition. What I suspect we we need more of, kind of like a soapbox in, in America, is this kind of practice in deception. And musicals offer that. And that was one reason why I was, or one conclusion I came to while investigating this, what I would call the lived experience of musical theater. That is the way people practice and relate to musical theater in pockets of the country that have no obvious connection to musical theater. They're not on Broadway or they're not in a major city. And so part of that has to do with musicals giving space and a platform to tell lies about the world. What I mean by lies is not maybe the, the impulse behind when we hear someone is lying. It's a, it's definitely not a thing you're supposed to be doing, but lies can be pro-social. We can tell lies in a way that helps the world for instance, um, a doctor giving a placebo or somebody flattering a friend with what they want to hear instead of maybe what the truth would be. There are times when telling a lie can be more righteous than telling the truth. And I, so I wanted to complicate this word lie and being not so painted with that one negative color. And what it led me to was to think of lies as being some stories that are out of place, stories about the not yet they are telling about a world that doesn't exist yet, right? We can kind of fall to that point. And it occurred to me that, that especially in this kind of post-truth climate, if all we do is look around us and affirm the world that exists in its current form, then we're being journalists. We're not really challenging the norm. We're just reporting back what we see. And it doesn't take too long to report back that things are really messy and, and um, we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> My 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 way out of that, I, su I suspect, is that we should be more engaged in telling lies about the world. We should be, begin practicing the kinds of storytelling that actually creates a not yet world, that we can imagine a world where we take climate change seriously or we can imagine a world where politicians are held to this kind of higher standard or whatever your politics are, whatever your fantasy world would be. So I wanted to find out how musicals were doing this because I suspected, and maybe if you're familiar with musicals at all, you know this kind of, this tidy reconciliation, this fantasy worlds they're always living in, that that was actually carving out a space for people to practice living in spaces that don't yet exist or that, that can't exist in its current form. And so that's the space that I think musicals occupy and people love them or hate them because of that reason. But I think the kinds of deception that musicals invite us to we need more of, and we need more of that now. So let me make sure I understand, and maybe I, I, you know, I might need more of an explanation. So what you're saying is that we can imagine a better wor world for ourselves, like a musical does, and perhaps live into that, like be kinder to each other, be more loving towards each other. Is that kind of what you're saying, or, or am I not getting it? No, it's totally it. it. You can't create a better world if all you do is look around and affirm the badness of the current one. Lying is a creative act. Let's put it that way. Observing the world is not. And so if you really want to build another world, it starts with telling lies about, practicing telling lies about the current one. So that's how I, I it's a, that's how I started structuring this uh, investigation into musicals was that lies don't have to always be bad and that they're actually a creative um, adventure and that there aren't a lot of spaces in the current conversation where creativity and imagination are welcome. Um, and, and so I wanted to find a way of opening up past critique of the world into spaces where you can actually build and through imagining, because I guess, you know, to put a fine point on it, you can't build a new world if you can't first imagine what that world might look like. And musicals do that for us. That is so interesting, Jake. Like, I mean, I have to do a few mental gymnastics to get around it, but I think I'm getting there. That's really, what an interesting way, what an interesting book. And that's more of your second book, right? The second book is about that. Yeah, the second, Lying in the Middle, yeah, which is, 
yeah, which is kind of takes that a little bit more earnestly. I, I start looking at that idea in the Mormons book and it develops, of course, mostly in the second one. Very cool. So, so I said that we look at it from a global perspective. So now let's, let's kind of narrow it down since you're, um, since you know a lot about community Christ and Mormonism, um, can we narrow that idea that you just said down into Mormonism and talk about, you know, like Mormonism has a huge, um, musical past, you know, with, uh, they have tons of movies, they have tons of pageants. I've only seen a few of them, so I don't know all about all of them, but I, I know that it's a really big deal in the Mormon church to have um, musicals. So can we kind of narrow it down, narrow that focus down and talk a little bit what we were just talking about with Mormonism? Yes. So I'll start with the voice. So musicals are, the way I put it is the musicals exchange value through the voice. So a character sings in order to express themselves in a musical. And if there's a character on stage who doesn't sing, they don't matter. And so there's all sorts of ways by belonging is measured by the voice in, in this genre of musical theater. And in a lot of ways, Mormonism is as strictly devoted to the, the voice as musical theater is. And I'll explain that a, a little bit here. So um, the origins of the document, the Book of Mormon, um, or not, you know, not, not the musical book of one, but the actual thing, the book we look at, um, the origins of that are sonic. So it's, it exists as these plates, but those plates disappear from us. So we don't have any kind of evidence of that in its written form. And we know now that, that how it becomes translated by Joseph Smith from those plates to uh, something we can read on paper is he looks into a hat and he speaks these words out loud. So this kind of this vision is it appears to him in word form and then he speaks it and then somebody writes it down. And so that already speaks to this kind of uh, sonic version of this book. That's actually kind of a multimodal book, the book of Mormon and added to by the fact that the book of Mormon refers to itself a lot as a voice, a voice whispering from the dust It's kind of bringing back some kind of sonic urgency from the past that's how the Book of Mormon presents itself. So um, there are a couple of examples of how that then develops in the very beginnings of the Restoration. Um, one of them from the Book of Mormon itself, and that's this exchange between Nephi and, and uh, Laman. Um, or no, not Laman, I'm sorry, but Nephi and uh, Laban, who's uh, the bad guy in the story. And he has to, before the family can even leave, Jerusalem, they have to get these really important plates, these hist historical documents from him, but he doesn't want to give them up. And then Nephi uh, comes back and uh, uh, is directed by God to go get him no matter what, finds Laban drunk and passed out. And then uh, what happens is Nephi kills Laban, takes his clothes, puts them on, and then speaks with the voice of Laban to all of Laban's servants in order to get the plates back to him. And so what you have in that moment is kind of God... Um, ordaining this, uh, what I call vicarious voice, where you speak on behalf of somebody else, you pretend to be somebody you're not. And that happens through the voice. And if you want to be really you know, particular about it, it looks, he looks like he's donning a costume and then presenting himself as an actor. So uh, Nephi does this. We know from other biblical stories, like Jacob gets his birthright from do basically doing the same thing, um, duping somebody by speaking like them, pretending out, dressing up like them. Um, this happens pretty frequently throughout. And uh, so you start getting instances where God actually favors this kind of pretend, this deception, this way into truth or getting uh, as a means to an end. Deception is, is often used uh, quite frequently. And then the second example I think about is actually at the crux between Mormonism and or between the LDS Church and the Community of Christ, which is this uh, crisis of, of who's going to then uh, pick up after Joseph Smith is murdered. And in Nauvoo, there is, especially it's, it's a legend in Mormonism. I'm curious if community of Christ knows as much about this because I, I wasn't aware of it as much until I became Mormon. Um, but Brigham Young arises in front of this crowd as they're kind of debating who should be the next leader. And he essentially says no one person should be the leader, but all the keys to the priesthood and all the, all the rights that we need in this dispensation are already given to the 12 uh, apostles. And so there was no 
need for any one particular person. But so the story goes, as he was speaking, people started seeing him as Joseph and hearing Joseph's voice come out of his, of his mouth. Um, what we know later is that Brigham Young was a, was a mimic and an actor. Actually, he, he founded a lot of, uh, he was a, it was kind of like a, a producer of shows and plays in the Salt Lake Valley once they arrived. One of the first buildings they actually completed uh, building was a theater. So uh, who knows if he really, if, who, I don't think this actually happened. I mean, to my, my own opinion, I don't think it's ever happened, but it, it may have been an actorly gesture more than it would have been any kind of divine moment, similar to how Nephi was doing this kind of actorly gesture. So anyway, I, I kind of, I'm going on a little bit, but I, I think that in those two examples and then in other kind of biblical examples where pretend plays a role, you start seeing that the center of Mormonism and the center of this kind of godly exchange is the voice and that the human voice is somehow really important in, in these stories about God interchanging with humans. And so that, again, is kind of the relationship I was drawing to musicals where musicals are also using this economy of voice in order to measure value in the world. And that if, if Mormons are trying to practice this godliness to become godlike themselves in these kind of future eternities, then part of that uh, practice involves speaking on behalf of other people, pretending to be other people, to speak like them, to uh, modulate your voice to be like them, because God has already shown many, many times that that's what gods do. That is so interesting. Um, actually, I did know the story about Brigham Young, but I did not know the story about Brigham Young that you just told until I moved to Utah. So I doubt that a lot of community Christ people would know that story, or maybe they do. Maybe I just didn't pay attention at all. So, um, so I musicals in the Mormon church have been super, super important. Can, can you talk a little bit about what else those musicals bring like Saturday's warrior? I can't name them all. I know that they, um, have uh, like the Hill Kimura pageant and which has, I think recently stopped. I don't know if they do that anymore. Maybe they do. I don't know. Um, and some other pageants around, like what do those musicals do for the Mormon church or for the people who watch them? Why do they continue going on? And, um, I know there's lots of movies actually that are musicals in the Mormon faith because here in Utah, they actually show up on my TV sometimes and say, do you want to watch Saturday's warrior? And I don't know if that happens other places, but in Utah, it does. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not in other places. Uh, you know, as you move closer to our present or you know, closer to, let's say, Book of Mormon, the musical, you start seeing that the Mormon church and the Mormon culture broadly has realized better and better how to use musicals. So um, Saturday's Warrior is a 1970s, 1980s rock musical, and it's one of dozens that exist that are written for and by Mormons to be performed, you know, as like a fun church type community, you know, a skit. Um, and they're often very, they often take themselves very seriously and it can be really kitschy and they're, you know, they're, they're musicals, right? They kind of fit into this genre really, really well. Um, if you backtrack a few decades before that, um, well, it, actually even into the 19th century, Mormons were involved in musical theater or what the early versions of musical theater like operetta and vaudeville um, and even minstrelsy Mormons were involved in that, but usually in not ways they wanted to be. They were often depicted as the villains in these, um, these kind of anti-Mormon operettas, always having to do with polygamy, often very exaggerated accounts of it, um, cartoonish in a lot of ways. But, you know, at this point, 19th century, Mormons had left the country, right? They left and went to what was, what was Mexican territory, what's now Utah. And so they had you know, most people in America had very little opportunity to engage with actual Mormons. And so it just kind of led the stories to get more and more wild and the depictions of them in the newspapers to be more and more exaggerated. Um, so Mormons were often depicted in uh, stage plays and in musicals in ways that were probably not that flattering. And after polygamy gets disavowed in the early part of the 20th century by mainstream Mormons, uh, you start seeing uh, a bit of an anxiety among the Mormon leadership to try to turn the narrative around because all of a sudden Mormons are this oddball group off in the middle of nowhere who are doing weird things um, and have like these kind of proto-socialist communities and they're living in polygamy. And so uh, as they start scrubbing out to those more complex components of Mormonism, they uh, look to a genre or a, a cultural 
vehicle that can help simplify complex issues into one one note. And musicals are very good at that. Very good at kind of let's say whitewashing the past and making it more convenient. So it was in the 1940s, in fact, 1947, which was the centennial celebration of Utah. In 1947, the church commissioned a musical uh, called Promised Valley. And it was about this trek west across the plains to arrive in the valley. And um, it was a really big deal. It was an enormous amount of money put into it. It was kind of the center stone or the keystone of this uh, this whole centennial celebration. And they hired people from Broadway. They hired um, uh, major actors from Broadway productions. They tried to get Broadway composers to write it. Um, and the most important thing is it was modeled after Oklahoma, the musical Oklahoma, which had just come out four years earlier, which was also about this kind of idealized, fantastical frontier where everybody just happens to get along. And so, um, and where there are no more, there's no more Indians, there's no more black people. It's like it's completely whitewashed version of what America looks like um, and what the ideal America would look like. I think that's probably what the point was. So, um, and in that case, Mormons were, were very strategically using a musical to turn the narrative around, to flip the script and to say, Mormons belong and we are just like you, we're mainstream. Um, the, the kind of metaphor that's used throughout Promise Valley is one of voice, again, where we have huge choral numbers where the choirs sing and hear choirs standing in for harmony, collective harmony, collective work that we can collaborate and modulate our voices out of discord and into something that's unified and harmonious. And that's, that's the idea of musical theater, right? That everybody somehow, we meet a community in a musical in, that's in chaos. And that chaos gets resolved usually by everybody seeing that there's something that we can agree on and we can move forward. And then there's like a big wedding or something and the story stops. And that's, that's more or less how Mormons were using musicals in the mid part of the 20th century, kind of as Paul Reeve puts it, a historian of Mormon race, that Mormonism and race, he says that Mormons were aspiring to whiteness at this point. They were trying to locate themselves in the middle of America, uh, American values, and to move away from the more um, problematic uh, racialized past with polygamy, where Mormons were associated with um, Muslims and um, other kind of, at that point, degraded races in America. So, you know, it, it shifts as you move along throughout history. That was a very pragmatic choice to use a musical to try to change the narrative. By the 1960s and 70s, you have rock musicals. It's kind of a way of, uh, of latching on to commercial successes within America. This is the rise of Donnie Marie Osmond and other kinds of Mormon exports um, into pop culture, Mormons kind of finally accepting pop culture as something they have to deal with instead of just completely resisting it at, at every turn. Um, you mentioned pageants like the Hilkamore pageant. Those were dotted throughout the 20th century and uh, are kind of a bygone era when in America there was a lot of outdoor musical dramas like pageants happening to tell versions of, the hist of, of a city's history. And that's mostly gone defunct including Hilkamore pageant, which I think is just wrapped up its last season. Um, the, the church is no longer sponsoring it. So anyway, I, I think it's, it's not as simple as, you know, Mormons don't use musicals for any necessarily one particular thing throughout history. They've discovered that musicals are really helpful for them to make certain points or to fit into the country in ways that are more convenient for them. Well, I mean, sure. I don't know if you can, well, I've only been to BYU a couple of times, but I, every time I've gone to BYU, I always hear someone singing Disney songs mostly. And like, there's a way to connect through that music and not just through Disney, of course, but through those, those musical, like we, we connect through that singing and we connect through that, that, um, that shared kind of history together, not community Christ and Mormonism necessarily, but like even together, you know, when a different groups of people come together and they know something and they know some songs together, you're automatically connected. So I, that's probably a part of it as well. So, Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, and, um, um, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who created Book of Mormon, the musical, the South Park guys, um, when they were brainstorming, writing this musical, they were saying, okay, it's Mormons, Disney, Rogers and Hammerstein, all different words for the same thing. And it's, it's true because in their, in their view, like if you go to Temple Square in Salt Lake City and you see this grand tip, it's like Cinderella's castle in the middle of the city. And it's very fairy tale, right? It's very fantastical. 
you too can, not only are you going to get your family when you go to heaven, but you're going to become gods, right? I mean, it's, it's like taking all of the most aspirational stories that people like in America and amplifying it to the nth degree. So it's not like in some ways Mormons, a, a musical about Mormons makes the most sense because that's more or less the language and the kind of narrative posture that Mormonism has created for itself for most of the 20th century. And, you know, that, that kind of aspiration of whiteness I mentioned that Mormons were occupied with in the 20th, early, the kind of mid part of the 20th century, they get really good at that. They actually launched themselves into the middle. I mean, they kind of crafted a 1950s version of America that continues on within them. And uh, to the point where it's become a liability, you know, somewhat like when, when, um, um, when, when Mormons are presented in popular culture, it's almost like they're too perfect, right? They're too, their hair is too well coiffed, their family too perfect, they're, they're making too much money. <laughs> they kind of are doing all the right things in this kind of capitalist American ideology, but it's suspiciously all too good. And that, that kind of aspiration to whiteness, like they overshot their mark a little bit. And Book of Mormon, the musical, takes advantage of that and mocks that place within America. So if you want to make fun of American uh, values, you use Mormons to do that because they so well represent all the things that America wants to be and all the things that are kind of problematic with that, that want. You know, I was, uh, I'm so glad you said that because I was actually going to say that, something like that. It, you know, seeing two Mormon missionary boys riding their bikes in their shirts and their ties and their helmets. And I mean, it, it is very wholesome and it, and it's like, Oh, look at those boys. Look what they're doing. They're, they're going out and they're doing what they feel called to do. And isn't that just beautiful. And then, you know, like I see a lot of people who fall outside that box and I meet a lot of people who fall outside the box and then they no longer, they just don't feel like they belong in the box because they're not wholesome people or they don't feel like they're wholesome people. And so I feel like in some ways, because the Mormon church has kind of overshot that mark, they've kind of painted themselves into a corner. Like you have to be perfect in order to be Mormon. And that's a, that's a really high mark to kind of grab for a lot of people and a little bit too difficult for a lot of people. So how interesting that it was, um, in 1947, Promised Valley, that was the name of that musical, yeah. that it was kind of what catapulted them into that space, which I find really interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, bookended, you have a musical that launches them into the middle of America. And in 2011, with Book of Mormon, you have a musical that's critiquing that that place. And so it really is musical theater that's in the middle of, music, of Mormonism the whole time. I, I talk about Mormonism as a theology of voice. I mean, there's a lot more to say about how voice factors in. But if you took voice out of Mormonism, there would be nothing left. It's at the center of everything. And it's the temp- center of the temple rituals, at the center of the first vision. Even though it's called the first vision, it's really about hearing something for the first time, not about seeing God and Jesus. So um, I, make, I make the point, or at least make that argument in that first book, um, that Mormonism can maybe best be understood as this theology centered around voice, um, which then, you know, you can connect to musicals pretty pretty quickly with that um, this idea of what, what voice is doing in musicals as well. Well, I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about that. If you want to go back into the voice and talk a little bit more about that, I'd be happy to hear a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. So something peculiar to when Mormonism arrives in America is that God was no longer quiet. God had, God was very loquacious, right? God has lots of people speaking on behalf of him at this point. And so Joseph's, Smith was not the only one in that region to be to claim to hear and see God and to have a message that was urgent and different. And so the 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 problem that Americans had to face at that point was that they had to then listen differently because you're then listening for um, distinctions about how somebody is telling the truth about God or conveying the reality of God that they saw and heard somebody that you can't see and hear for yourself. And so that puts the onus on listening already that as at the very origins of Mormonism as this kind of American post-enlightenment uh, uh, religion. So um, part of that has to do with, with Joseph saying that, um, you know, the, the only one person on earth at a time can speak on behalf of God, and that's me at this moment. And so that, that creates this 
hierarchy where everybody can hear and have a relationship with God, but no one except for the one ordained can actually be the, the mouthpiece. Everything else is hearsay or everything else is, you know, it's not legitimate. And so there's a, there's a passage in Doctrine and Covenants where God is speaking and God says, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. And I take that, that passage and literalize it and think, okay, well, every time you're hearing the prophets speak, then you are hearing literally the voice of God, because that's what God is essentially saying. And so that um, puts this, this kind of, what that creates is that the prophet is speaking on behalf, pretending to be voicing the sounds of God's voice. It's peculiar within Mormonism because Mormons believe in a physical God, a God with a physical body, that God once was a man on, a just on another earth or a version of earth like this, and so has a resurrected body with lungs and teeth and lips and a mouth and with ears. And so it's not, it's not some abstract entity that, that, that these prophets are speaking on behalf of. It's like one set of lips speaking into the ear of another human being. And uh, what that creates is this kind of uh, strata of where God speaks on behalf of, or sorry, with the prophet speaks on behalf of God. And then everyday Mormons then repeat that. And they, they repeat it in a way that invoices God, invoices the prophet, which is like another way of invoicing God. So there's this like chain that emerges down from God's voice down to everybody else. And you hear this all the time if you go to Mormon services, like if you go to a fast and testimony meeting, for instance, which happens the, uh, once a month on a Sunday, um, where people will kind of be moved by the spirit to get up and tell a story about something that happened or to testify of the truths they know. And, uh, or they're going to say a prayer, all of a sudden their everyday language and pattern of the voice shifts to becoming something different. They sound different. And that if you track what that sounds like, everybody essentially is trying to sound like a general authority or a prophet, which is another way of saying like, now you're sounding like God. So there's this kind of effort to, to speak like, or on behalf of other people that's, that's very much at the center of Mormonism. It depends on somebody telling you that God said something else, right? It's this kind of telephone game that's constantly happening. And uh, that's what makes Mormonism tick. And again, if you think about that, Mormons see this mortal life as preparatory for an eternal godlike life where they become gods too, then the way to become godlike is to practice speaking on behalf of other people, to practice placing your voice in somebody else's ear. Uh, or somebody else's voice into your own mouth. So that's the kind of theology that's built underneath Mormonism that I explore quite a bit. Um, in this book about musicals, you know, it's, this book is trying to do a lot of things, but one of those is to draw a theoretical connection between voice in Mormonism and kind of what voice does in on the stage, right? Where actors are also always pretending to be somebody else. Oh my gosh, Jake, I've never thought about any of this. This is so interesting to me uh, that, I mean, I I have only been to one um, Mormon service uh, and I I did recognize, and I've heard Mormons pray before, I did recognize that there's a lot of these and thys and thous perhaps in prayers and sounds like scripture, the King James version of scripture. Mm-hmm. And at the end of every testimony, a uh, Mormon would say in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, or, or right. Or something like that. So like, yeah. there is like this thing, like this is kind of like a musical and it's wrapped up in a nice, neat little box and a nice, neat little bow. And I'm, I'm finished and I can sit back down and I can speak for myself again. It, is that, am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And it, it, it's that, you know, I don't think most Mormons would ever say, Oh, that's like a musical or that they would necessarily see that as being, um, um, odd, right? Um, but, you know, from my perspective, that's very much the kind of principle behind musicals as well, right? Where everybody somehow magically speaks the same, they somehow all know the harmony. And the more they do that as a community, they express a greater and greater cohesion. And, you know, that's just true even outside of musical theater. Like, if you look at the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, America's choir, right? This kind of ordained uh, ordained mouthpiece of America, right? Where it's like, here's a very disciplined body of people who have agreed to 
uh, harmonize and the choir or choral, the choral world sometimes be like this like metaphor of all the things America likes to think about itself, right? Where everybody's voice matters, everybody's voice kind of contributes to this great machine that is democracy and that it moves us forward. And, you know, I, even if you don't believe in Mormonism or you think that Mormonism is kind of goofy in its ways, I think there's something really endearing about this sincerity that um, fairy tales can, can come true. And that's exactly how they present themselves. And in fact, when I was doing research for this book early on, for the Mormons book early on, I was in Provo um, and I, it was a Sunday when I got there and nothing was open on Sundays in, in Mormon land. Uh, but there was a Denny's that was, that was open. So I went there to eat and uh, the wait staff, at least at the time I was there, wore their non-Mormonness on their sleeve. Like they were clearly like they didn't really fit in to that, to that world. Um, and so I was talking with one of the, the waitresses who was not Mormon, but had moved there uh, for a relationship um, at some point. And she said, you know, it's, even though Mormons, Mormonism is not my fairy tale, it's still important to live around a fairy tale. And so, you know, she wasn't buying into what Mormonism was saying specifically, but it was the spirit of imagination, of willingness to believe in something that was fantastical and goofy and maybe even oddball. And because there's something, in, I mean, there's something inspiring about that. I do, I've come to believe that. That's why I think people like music. And you know, even in the Book of Mormon, the musical, there is the scene where the main the main character is singing a song, I believe, and he talks about all these really he, he's cementing his belief in Mormonism and everything he says to a non-Mormon ear sounds ridiculous. Like these and these are like actual tenets of belief within Mormonism. Like the ancient Jews sailed in boats across to America, um, or uh uh, you know, th th this kind of like fantastical worldview that Mormons have created for themselves. Um, but it's not meant to be funny. Like it's actually sincere. You see these people engaging really directly with it. And I guess that's what I mean by, by telling lies. I think Mormons are good at telling lies about the world because they're looking beyond it. They're invested in a world that's not yet. And uh, this is true for a lot of religions. I, I, I'll say that like a religion factors really neatly within musicals because it's another shared space where they're not really concerned with the world as it is. They're investing in a world that's not yet and a world that can be, which is maybe more just and more humane and more in line with the values they actually want. So that's why I also think Mormons, I mean, sorry, uh, religions more broadly are gravitating towards musicals because it's a shared kind of value system. Oh gosh, Jake, I've never thought about that either. And you know, you, I mean, since I've been communion of Christ my whole life, I immediately thought about communion of Christ and how we try not to focus in on the hereafter so much. Like we focus in on how we can be like Jesus now and how we can make our, the world like Zion, more like Zion right now. And I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty huge disconnect between yes. uh, community Christ and Mormonism, a really huge disconnect. And I've I've thought about that disconnect before, but I've never put it in that kind of a way. So thank you for saying that. That's a really interesting, I'm going to have to let that marinate a little bit more in my head because I do think that it's important to realize that Community Christ and LDS Church, we sometimes we're not even sharing the same language, like not even the same language group. <laughs> um, totally. and, and we think that we are. And it's simply very, very different. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to chew on that for a little while longer. No, that's a great, it's a great point. And I think that's one reason why the community of Christ has never cultivated a really strong musical theater community, right. As opposed to Mormons. So, you know, you look around other restoration branch, other kind of splintered groups from the restoration and you don't see this connection as, as, as strongly as you do in Mormonism. The, my book, the Lying in the Middle, I do have a chapter on the FLDS, Fundamentalist Church, um, who have been very active in musical theater, and they're the most secluded, most insular community um, where they're not going to Broadway. Broadway's not touring through them, and yet they've cultivated this relationship with musical theater that's really striking and in some ways very bizarre. Um, but yeah, you don't see that in the community of Christ. So uh, that's an interesting point about the kind of like, where does the kind of progressivism lie, right? Is it moving towards, a, is it putting all your energies into the world that's not here yet? 
or is it kind of turning it back on, on uh, uh, kind of encouraging that where you are? Oh, my friend, I have driven through Colorado City Hilldale and it was, it was a crazy place. It was one crazy place. It is very insular there. That is for sure. Oh my gosh. So Jake, this is a really interesting way of um, moving on. I, I, I like talking about this community Christ Mormonism thing. And since you have been both, you can kind of straddle that for us and help us out a little bit more. So are there, are there any other distinctions between community Christ and Mormonism, like in the musical language, the way the hymns are structured, the sounds of the two churches? Can you talk a little bit about that? Since we have, we actually have a lot of listeners who are community of Christ and a lot of people who are post-Mormon. So, so they might be interested in hearing those differences and the sameness. Oh yeah. There's, oh gosh, there's definitely a difference in the musical languages of these two churches um, at this point. Um, and the, the community of Christ within recent years redid their hymnal. Right. And so now it's got much more inclusive language. Um, some tunes were thrown out, um, new kind of aesthetics of taste kind of brought in um, and many, many other cultures represented with, than the sounds and the language, right? I mean, of, of these of these hymnal, it's very. I think the community Christ is rightly very proud of what that hymnal represents. The Mormon Church is doing the same thing now, and so I have no idea what that will look like. Um, but you know, even if you just took a snapshot today and went from a community of Christ service, a typical community of Christ service, to a typical Mormon service, um, the musical languages would be strikingly different. The Mormon church is much more subdued in its musical rhetoric. So it's uh, most of the music happens through an organ, for instance, which is very traditional sound. People uh, do not clap. <laughs> There's no like percussion happening. Um, kids aren't running up and like doing a special number with their guitar and tambourine is like that. That's not happening at all. Whereas in a community of Christ, you might see all of that. You might see kids with like little rhythm instruments running throughout the, the, the room. Um, you might see space given to a budding uh, pianist to play a little bit of their, of their tune during offertory or something like that. Um, there are more moments I would say in a community of Christ service that are saturated with music and sound than there are in a, in a Mormon service. I think some of that's intentional. Um, for instance, during uh, com communion or what the Mormon what Mormons call sacrament, uh, typically in a community of Christ service, there's music happening during that time because it's dead space. It takes time to move throughout the, <laughs> to like hand everything out and collect it, and silence seems to be awkward for a lot of people. So there's always music um, in sacrament meeting. Um, there's never music happening. Um, during while the Mormons are, are, are partaking in the sacrament. That's considered um, time where you're supposed to be reflective on the atonement. You're supposed to be thinking fervently. You're not supposed to be distracted by, by sounds. And, you know, this is, a, this is a, uh, an ancient kind of uh, paradox. Even, um, even like St. Augustine worried about how much music was making him forget about the words and forget about God. Um, and so there's always been this concern about music maybe taking away from the purpose behind your gathering and what you're actually doing. Um, and then other, of course, there's other ways of looking at the music it helps people stay there. It makes it more engaging. It makes you reflective a different way. So I would say there's more silence in Mormon services um, and uh, more homogenous musical language than there is in the community of Christ. Um, there's, a, there's some interesting studies about why that is the case, because you have very even similar origins, right? You have the same kind of origin story, and then you have this dynamic shift at some point where you, you land, you know, in the 21st century, and this, they sound and look very, very different from what they, from, from each other. And Michael Hicks, who's a musicologist at BYU, a Mormon scholar, he, um, he's written about this, that the, the original hymn book within Mormonism was, of course, given to Emma Smith to do. She was supposed to um, arrange and find hymns and put together this hymn book. And he, what he's discovered is that almost immediately when she was given that task, some of the brethren or some of the, um, the, the male leaders of the church started inserting themselves into this, this process and saying, well, we don't want that hymn, or we don't want this particular lyric. And when you look at the hymn, hymn 
hymns that uh, Emma chose, the text is often about a very personal relationship with Jesus, a very intimate, immediate relationship, um, very, uh, um, very descriptive language about um, personal one-on-one relationship. Um, that slowly starts getting substituted away by other interlocutors who decide to, to replace those kinds of hymns and language with them with hymns that are more reflective of a, of a of vengeance of a militant God of this kind of follow the prophet or else <laughs> those kinds of, of sentiments. And you start getting a more distant relationship to, to God through this kind of prism of militancy. And I think that's about a good representation of, of, of the differences in the musical language as they shifted. Emma, of course, remains within the, within the church um, as the body moves west through um, into Salt Lake. And in some ways, the spirit of her, of her hymnal stays as well. And uh, it, it's funny because like there's the old saying that the doors of your life turn on small hinges and I think that's what happened here in the Restoration. A very small choice about the kind of hymns that you're going to include actually in this hymnal. Um, they make a big difference over time because you start going further and further apart from each other. And not, not I don't make, I'm painting with a broad brush here. Um, there's a lot of hymns in Mormonism today that are about a really close relationship with Jesus. And I don't think any Mormon would say they, they would favor militancy over, <laughs> over um, you know, this kind of deep fervency of religion. But uh, overall, that does reflect this, this kind of march-like sensibility. You have lots of marches and lots, lots of kind of patriotic fanfare in Mormon hymnals that you just don't see in a puny price anymore. And so you know, we were talking earlier about one reason why Mormons are so attracted to musical theater versus community of Christ, where it doesn't seem like there's, not, there's almost completely absent the same kind of culture. Um, and I think that's reflected in just the way these two different Mormon restoration groups see the purpose of sound in their, in their services, whether it's to include other people or whether it's to kind of draw our attention to a world that doesn't, that isn't here yet to like prepare us for something that's coming around the corner. Oh, well, like I I've never actually heard that phrase before that the door swings on small hinges, but it certainly seems like that is the case here. And, you know, you know, on community Christ, we love to say that we're Emma's church. So that's really important oh, yes. to us. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think the part, in fact, I think what Michael Hicks writes in this essay that I'm, I'm referring to is that, that, that Emma didn't leave the church. In some ways the church left Emma by, by starting to move away from that initial, like she was called to do that job for a particular reason and then it was slowly taken away from her with the results being that maybe there's a very different church on the other end of that. That's really interesting to hear you say that. Jake, I have learned so much from you. I, I have thought about things that I haven't really thought about before. And, you know, I've always loved musicals ever since I was a kid. I thought they were so, so fun, but I had no idea that they had such a, an impact on the world and an impact on religions. I, I've never thought about that. And I'm so, so glad that you agreed to this uh, podcast because I've learned a lot. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Carla. I really appreciate the invitation. And yeah, it's got my my mind thinking differently uh, and fun and, and in different ways as well. So, so before we, oh yeah, I, it's been awesome. So before we sign out, um, why don't you tell us the name of your books again, just in case people are interested in getting them and how can they get them? Sure. So they're both published through the University of Illinois Press. So you can always order through them. They're also on like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, those kinds of, of spaces. Um, the first book is called Mormons, Musical Theater and Belonging in America. And the second, which comes out this fall, is called Lying in the Middle, Musical Theater and Belief at the Heart of America. Awesome. Well, Jake, thanks so much for being here. And thanks so much for imparting some of your wisdom to us. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks again, Carla. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy 
or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 